This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Today I'm calling this uh, talk 20 Years of Work in 20 Minutes. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the background and demand response, my background and demand response, and then uh, the fleet electrification space. I came to California in 2000, and uh, 20 years later, uh, just uh, recently, this article came up. And a year after I came to uh, California, we had the blackout, blackouts and black brownouts. And at the time, I was uh, a stay-at-home mom with two kids uh, that got stuck in traffic lights uh, due to a blackouts and brownouts. And took me about um, about an hour to go a 10-mile ride. And I thought, you know, we can do better. We should do better. And so I started looking at uh, the grid space to get back to work and and uh, making a difference. And I, and I thought, if I'm going to leave my kids, I really want to um, have an impactful career. So that's how I started my journey. And um, in about two years after that uh, blackout story, I attended an IEEE talk that was led by Marianne Piet from Berkeley Lab. And she talked about this great idea of automation of demand response. It was a very simple, elegant solution where the um, price and reliability signals from the grid were communicated to lots of buildings and buildings had pre-programmed strategies and they would just trigger those um, with the receipt of the signal. So that seemed like a very elegant solution, but what we found out when we get into the marketplace was that um, the understanding of the concept was not there. It was a fairly new concept. And when we started talking with the fleet, um, the facility managers, they said, we do demand response all the time. Uh, And obviously they weren't, they were doing energy efficiency. So we developed this framework to really get them to understand how demand response uh, fits into their daily um, activities. And so the first big daily activity for uh, facility managers is daily energy efficiency, where the service levels are optimized, meaning that we try to squeeze in every service, every good quality service, lighting, HVAC services from a, every KWH. And, and that's a daily activity. Then based on their um, rates, uh, electricity rates, there's time of use and daily peak load management. In this case, we're not really concerned of how much we're using energy, but we're starting to think about when we're also using this energy and how can we optimize it for when we use it. Um, That was pretty uh, new in the uh, early 2000s as well, in terms of the concept while the demand charges were around, there wasn't a lot of thinking around controlling the building loads for demand charges management, demand charge management. Then uh, came demand response, obviously, and in this case, um, uh, we had thought about the timescales of demand response and how automation could uh, actually um, help us achieve those timescales. Um, let me see. Uh, and then, oh, sorry. Um, in the case of demand response, service levels are temporarily reduced. Uh, what I mean by that is that Um, Demand response strategies have to be detectable, but at the same time, acceptable. And what that means is that if you're, you know, if you're, if you're, if they're not detectable, that you, then you can do better job in, in uh, squeezing more KWs. Um, If they're um, not acceptable, that means that you're not going to be able to do that for a very long time. And so increasing, 
as we go from left to right, increasing, there's increasing interactions with the grid and the need for automation, obviously. And then as we go from left to right again, there's increasing levels of granularity of control and increasing need for um, speedy telemetry devices uh, so that we can participate in various markets as we, as, we, um, as we get our buildings engaged. Now, I'm, going to talk, I'm not going to talk too much about this, um, this uh, slide, but the idea is to just show you that uh, a research that was really well funded by the uh, California Energy Commission starting in 2002 um, led to a hugely impactful standard by 2012. Lab to market took about 10 years. I joined somewhere in 2004 and did a lot of the field studies for this, for this work because what we develop in the lab and on paper and on simulations do not necessarily apply for when we're in the field. And a quick story on this is uh, when I um, build a, a pre-cooling algorithm, for example, it was a very well working um, very optimized uh, pre-cooling algorithm in, on paper and in simulations. But when I went to the field, I realized I can't do it because the therm thermostat or temperature adjustment did not go into decimals. So just a very simple um, uh, you know, uh, example of how things may change from the mar lab to market. But even after we actually handed over to the industry, it took about three to five years for the industry to adopt it as a standard and uh, grow in this in, it, it, with something that's already been, in, been done. So, uh, you know, uh, let me just tell you before I pass this is that in this example, um, we had an elegant solution for a problem, but we needed to really educate the users or the, or the adopters before we could actually deploy it. In this example, it's a little bit different. Um, once I looked at the span of OpenADR, I thought maybe it's because it's a software and a hardware combination. Maybe that's why it's taken such a long time. Let's focus on something that's just software. Maybe it's easier to transition the market. At the time I left Berkeley Lab and joined Google in Stanford, I was looking at physics-based models versus data-driven models to operate the grid. As you know, um, we use physics-based models to describe a phenomena, and the grid itself has always been used uh, or, or described with physics-based models. But there are phenomena in the grid and outside, obviously, that we can't explain with physics-based models, and data-driven models really um, lend themselves to explaining and modeling these, these new um, phenomena. So we uh, thought about developing a data analytics uh, uh, framework and a big data analytics platform with software that would uh, be used for planning and operating the grid. The idea is that there have been 10 million um, smart meters deployed in the California uh, households and commercial buildings. There's a lot of data that's being collected. Can we use the data to actually operate the um, grid better? And, and plan for the in, in, you know, integration of distributed energy resources. But we found out a year of uh, proposals, three years of work, uh, well sandbox software, well tested and sandbox software that's in open source. When we started to talk with the industry, their reaction was, this is great. We'll probably put it in our roadmap and make it available to our customers seven to 10 years. Again, it was the same story that was really interesting to me. Part of the problem this time was that we did not listen to their um, uh, customers, right? We, we came up with a solution 
Uh, and we were looking for a problem in a sense uh, to solve. We, we thought of the problem and we came up with that solution, but the industry was not ready to adopt it. So um, here's another example of, um, you know, starting with impact, but not necessarily getting there. So um, this made me stop and say, all right, so we can't uh, deal with these 10-year timelines. We have to do something right now and, um, uh, you know, take the matters into my own hands in a way. So when I looked at the impact um, sort of opportunity, the transportation sector produces 28% of the greenhouse gas emissions, and the fleet industry is about half of that. Fleets travel close to 300 billion miles in the U.S. They are a, close to a $200 billion industry. And there are 30 million fleet vehicles in the U.S., which seem like a huge opportunity if we could find the right solutions. So instead of, oh, let me just give you a little bit more on the industry, right? Four million of these 30 million vehicles are being leased. That means that they're being turned over every three to five years, which is a great opportunity for electrification. When you look at the distribution of the classes of vehicles, 31% is passenger vehicles, 56 classes, one through five. Um, uh, class six to eight, these are the really large, uh, bigger trucks, moving um, big moving vans, like 7%, and 6% of these fleets are buses. And then when we looked at studies from Navigant, BNEF, and McKinsey, the expected market size for electric fleets in 2030 is somewhere between 16 billion and 36 billion dollars. So huge growth opportunity in a huge market and a huge impact opportunity. It seems like the first uh, perfect thing for me to tackle. So instead of like doing it the other way, right? Coming up with a solution uh, for a problem that I think uh, is out there. This time, uh, my co-founder and I did it completely differently. We actually interviewed um, 250 fleet executives and really try to understand what were the big issues when they were trying to electrify their fleets. So we came up with four um, after talking to all of these uh, folks. The first one is for them, the fleet managers picking the locations, uh, the vehicles and chargers is extremely difficult. Their instinct is to make it look like a gasoline engine fleet, pick the highest range with the fastest charge. But when you look at their data, it's usual and overkill and uh, not necessary. So that's something that we learned very uh, upfront uh, about what they care and what they know and what they don't know about uh, their choices. The second thing is that none of the fleet managers that we talk with want to get into a construction project. It is not in their job description. They don't really want to um, deal with cost overruns or uh, delays, and that would just ruin their reputation. And they're very much like the old days of the facility managers, risk averse, and don't want to do anything that is risky uh, for their um, uh, profession or for, for, for their employment themselves. Uh, the third thing is that when the vehicles and chargers are at the site, uh, it's really difficult for them to operate these vehicles because their current telematics devices are not going to work. Some of these vehicles don't even have the ports, the OBD2 ports that are needed, and they don't have the software to uh, support their um, performance metric uh, tracking or a reporting or scheduling needs. Finally, if they uh, did a implementation at one depot, for them, it's extremely difficult to scale. They don't understand the energy markets. They don't know the rates um, and, and they change a lot, obviously. And the incentives across the country is a very daunting task for them to compile and, and make sense of. 
So our company actually does um, tackle the software side. We uh, take the internal combustion engine um, fleet data, uh, give them uh, the options in terms of total cost of ownership and CO2 savings. Then with our partners, we deliver vehicles and chargers. And then we uh, also have a software to help them monitor schedule and operate their electric, uh, electric fleet. I'm not going to talk about the IQ anymore, but I do want to tell you that um, we have, I've been very surprised how much data we've been getting from the industry as a person who's chased smart meter data. And as many of you know, very difficult to get the fleets give their data within a day. It's just so fast. They really want someone to uh, take a look at it. So we've worked with over 25 major fleets in the U.S., over uh, 70,000 vehicles analyzed, uh, over uh, 3.5 million trips. Uh, We work with all sorts of of fleets uh, just to get a sense of uh, which fleets move fast, which are the early adopters. But also, you know, collecting data from all of these fleets is extremely important and valuable in terms of a small startup that's building products. So I just want to uh, take a few slides and share with you uh, some of the learnings uh, from our, you know, first 22,000 vehicle uh, data analytics. So of the 22,000 vehicles, we found out that about 59% are technically feasible. So what I mean by that is that there is a vehicle that can meet their, um, in the same class and type, uh, that can meet their daily requirements. And that's huge because people don't even uh, realize that. The other thing is that 80, uh, I mean, 38% is economically feasible. What this means is that their, the electric vehicle total cost of ownership is at or below their current internal combustion total cost of ownership. So they can electrify and save money. 38% can save money, which is, of course, huge in terms of impact as well. Uh, the second thing we found out is that uh, based on the classes of vehicles, the, um, the, the opportunity changes. For light-duty vehicles, 57% is economically feasible, uh, and, and for medium-duty, about 5% is feasible. And then on the heavy-duty side, it's about 1%, partly uh, because of the you know, capital required to buy these heavy-duty vehicles is high, and um, there, and, and, and the cost of maintaining them is a little higher than, of course, light-duty vehicles as well. Um, let, let's, I want to dig, dig a little bit deeper into the light-duty vehicle space. Um, when we look at the passenger cars, the, a fleet saves about 19% over the 10-year lifetime. Uh, SUVs about 20%, and passenger uh, trucks are about 28%. So there's a lot of opportunity for them to actually electrify and again, um, save money. Um, the question that we usually get asked and we wanted to answer with these 22,000 vehicle uh, analysis is that, is it only available, should, is California the only place to do this? And um, 82% of the passenger cars uh, are economically feasible in these states. And when you look at these states, it's Oregon and Washington, it's Georgia and India and Vermont, I mean, New Hampshire, and so, um, so not just in California, but outside of California, there are a lot of opportunities as well. Um, when you look at the light duty vehicles, you're starting to see Florida, um, you know, Oregon, uh, South Carolina, and Texas, again, uh, being good candidate uh, states for these. Uh, 
uh, for medium duty uh, vehicles, obviously, it wasn't obvious to us, but given the incentives uh, from different states, uh, Wisconsin, Delaware, and of course, Texas uh, tends to rise as well. And then when you look at the heavy duty, of course, this is before the uh, advanced clean um, trucks rule in California, uh, Texas looked like the great place to deploy heavy duty uh, vehicles in terms of economic feasibility. And finally, I just wanted to show you the sustainability because we also take a look at that uh, and provide that information. In terms of sustainability, um, every fleet uh, we take off the road has some generation, um, electricity generation emissions associated with them. So uh, when we look at that, the clean states where there's a lot of hydro tend to be the best states in terms of EV sustainability. Uh, in this case, this, our studies showed that, um, you know, Vermont and Oregon were, the, were, were very good states because of the hydro and others that have renewable energy tend to be really good states to deploy fleets as well in terms of sustainability savings. So I, I want to just uh, wrap up my presentation with three lessons learned. Um, I started my journey as an applied researcher, and I know that applied research is extremely valuable. Uh, but we know, I also learned that lab to market transformation takes a lot of time. And the other thing I want to add is that it takes a lot of industry connections. And when we look at the research funding uh, streams today, um, we're not even allowed to travel with some of the funding sources uh, to make those industry connections and to participate in industry forums to develop our research that could be much more impactful that, uh, with, with industry connections and in interactions. The other thing is that for me, running a startup with amazing people is a really amazing experience. Uh, it is really chasing impact constantly, um, but it's not easy, right? It's not uh, as, as easy as being in an academic uh, environment where you have a lot of academic uh, support. Um, it is different because you're competing within, this, within industry and there are a lot of ups and downs. So if you're not, for example, uh, managing your cash flow, you can you can also um, uh, not guarantee your impact. So there are a lot of dependencies uh, on that too. Uh, so finally, seeing the impact uh, you make is an amazing feeling, and I'm sure some of you uh, are familiar with this feeling. Um, it is uh, what is driving most of us as researchers and and um, you know entrepreneurs. Uh, but there are a lot of ups and downs to get there. And, you know, the, the um, important thing is to continue to execute on the vision and continue to execute towards that impact. So I'll stop and see if you have any questions. So, so I'll wait to see if the audience uh, puts in any questions. Uh, but while we wait for that, perhaps I'll ask one question uh, from Sila. Um, and that is, what type of new data sources do you think can make like revolutionary and fundamental change in, in research capabilities and demand response going forward? Yeah, I mean, as you know, we are, there's a lot of data uh, at the utilities from smart meters, from feeders that are not being shared because, um, because of various reasons, right? Um, it would be so nice to get our hands on uh, some of that data and in advance our algorithms uh, and ground them with real data. Um, that's been a big uh, problem for the industry 
there has been a lot of uh, DOE, ARPA-E sort of solutions that are out there um, trying to make data available, whether it's um, you know simulation data or real data available for researchers so they can continue to do their work. Um, but again, it would be so nice if we had more data sources, especially um, in in from entities like utilities, where we can we can do significant work in terms of improving the planning and operation of their of their systems. There is a question from Glenn Duval, uh, who's who's one of our advisors, and uh, he asked a question about hydrogen. I see it. Uh, it says this hydrogen is an extension. Mm-hmm. Is hydrogen an extension of uh, electrification? Um, yes and no, right? Um, hydrogen is complex, and uh, it's an extension of the distributed energy resource world, and that's an extension of electrification for sure. Um, the the right now we're really focusing on uh, electrification and electric vehicles, battery electric vehicles, because um, even with the existing vehicle uh, base for fleets, we don't have enough technology or vehicle availability. So our focus as a small company is where the vehicles are available today. Uh, there are plenty of passenger vehicles. Um, I think in the U.S. last year, 150,000 vehicles were produced or sold, I'm sorry, uh, sold. Um, electric vehicles were sold. So there's a big market, mass production. Uh, that's where we can make a huge difference. When you look at, for example, the top pharma uh, fleets where they're uh, driven by sales representatives, there are about 70,000 vehicles out there. Um, we can electrify them today and save money to these companies. Uh, so our focus is the low hanging fruits at this time. Sala, John Bowers here. I had a question. Certainly over the last couple decades, the electrification of the, you know, has proceeded faster than one, one expected, right? In terms of how many electric vehicles we have on the road. But now with a lot of incentives being removed, I wondered if that was decelerating significantly or not, or is it still, I mean, becoming widely accepted or not. So I mean, you have this projection of 16 to 36 billion in 2030. It's a huge range, but far bigger than what probably 10 years ago you would have expected. But yeah. what's the, the current trend there? So um, incentives in a way are not, they're being talked about faded out, but they haven't been, right? So we still have, uh, if the federal incentives are faded away, there are states that have um, incentives for charging infrastructure deployments as well as uh, vehicle deployments. Uh, so we don't see incentives making and on the federal side going away, being a huge um, uh, deterrent for fleets today. Uh, there are other factors that are really motivating fleets today. For example, the ESG mandates of uh, companies that require them to take some sustainability actions and, and these corporations looking at their fleets as a way to do that cost effectively is a big driver today. And that's not going to go away. The reason it's cost effective is not just the, you know, um, I mean, the upfront costs, the vehicles are high, so incentives really help. But the maintenance cost over the life of the building, uh, of the uh, vehicle, is also a huge uh, benefit. And also fuel costs are lower in in general. Um, So, uh, you know, over the, if you think about the life of the vehicle and the fleet, uh, the costs are actually, even without the incentives in some cases, make a lot of sense. And so um, 
uh, that's that's on the on the incentive side. That's one end. The other thing is that there are a lot of state mandates and policies that are supporting electric vehicle adoption, and they're getting stronger and um, targets are getting closer. Um, and and so that has been a big driver as well. So I, we don't see incentives slowing down, uh, becoming a huge issue because there are a lot of other drivers in the in the marketplace today. That's great. Glad to hear it. I mean, in my case, I, I did the calculation. If I charge at night, it's I'm getting equivalent to 100 miles per gallon. That's that's what it's costing me, and uh, even with low gas prices. So to me, it's a no-brainer. But uh, but I'll admit I bought mine in time to get the the federal incentive. So uh, it does work. And and fleets get a lot of different discounts and incentives. So what you pay and I and I pay for uh, our vehicles are very different than what fleets get typically. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, is one from Glenn that says, "How do you drive down costs enough to get return on investment down to eighteen to thirty six months versus five years?" Yeah, we're not there yet, right? So eighteen months, thirty six months, um, it's not going to happen. Um, anytime soon because of the cost of the vehicle and cost of the battery. A battery cost is still uh, a major, uh, major uh, issue. Um, and, but we, we do expect there's a lot of research in great, uh, you know, places like national labs and academia that, that is, you know, building better batteries, uh, more condensed, more, more dense and at a lower price point. So, um, you know, those are the ones that are going to drive the cost down, make it more, um, uh, you know, uh, for all of us, make it more convenient uh, uh, in the future, I think. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.